Welcome to Kobe Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Taimur Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 109th episode. This is an atypical episode. For the first time in this podcast history, we will discuss the intersection of faith and economics. In particular, some of the foundational principles of Catholic faith and the role they have played and could play going forward in modern economic practices and policy. Our guest is Dr. Tony Annette, a visiting scholar at the Center for Sustainable Development, Columbia University. Previously, Tony spent two decades, actually more than two decades, at the International Monetary Fund. He is also a member of the College of Fellows at the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology. Last year, Tony published Catonomics, How Catholic Tradition Can Create a More Just Economy. Now, I'm not a Catholic, nor most likely are most listeners of Kopi Time. But I think there is room to hear a moral voice from a different faith. At the very least, it demonstrates the universality of our imperatives and goals. Tony Annette, welcome to Kopi Time. Thanks, Timur. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I think uh, we should do a full disclosure to our listeners that more than a decade ago, you and I had a blog <laughs> called Reasons and Opinions. And I yes. would like to think that your thoughts on Catholic economics began way back then. That's absolutely definitely true. I would say that, yes. And we were early in the days of blogging. Um, so, Tony, uh, let's start with the background. Uh, what is the, or explain to us, the historical foundations of Catholic social teachings? Sure. So Catholic social teaching is a body of teaching that relates to the economy and to society more generally. Uh, this relates all the way back to biblical teachings. If you all, if you go back to the Hebrew scriptures, you'll see things like do not charge usury on loans, look after the strangers in your society. And then you have things like every seven years, you want to relieve all debt. Every 49 years, you want to relieve all debt and, re and restore all property that has been sold in the previous 49 years to its original owners. So there's a set of very radical economic teachings that go all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures. Now, Catholic social teaching has been working out this for about 2,000 years. Modern Catholic social teaching started in the late 19th century when Pope Leo XIII was grappling with the moral challenges of the Industrial Revolution and the massive economic and social upheavals and the mistreatment of workers in the new factories. So he wrote a document called Rerum Novarum, which is really a strong statement in favor of the rights of workers in this new capitalist economy. And ever since then, the popes have been trying to provide moral guidance to the great challenges we face, whether it's the Great Depression, the wave of decolonization after the Second World War, all the way through to the global financial crisis and then to the climate crisis we face today. Um, basically, the popes have been trying to apply timeless ethical principles to very concrete and specific realities that we're facing today. Timeless principles. So can moral principles exist without faith? Can moral principles exist without faith? I think they absolutely can. 
in a sense, one sense is that Catholic social teaching, one leg, one branch traces back to the Bible, but another branch traces back to the philosophy of Aristotle, who talked about in our economic life, you want the sense of balance and moderation. You don't want greed. You don't want grasping. You don't want too much materialism. And happiness is not about seeking wealth. Happiness is about living a full, flourishing, thriving life. This is Aristotle, and this is very influential in Catholic social teaching. And I would also appeal to one of my favorite modern political philosophers, that's John Rawls, who argued from a very non-religious foundation that ethically we should be trying to maximize the position of the least worst-off person in society. And that's very resonant with Catholic social teaching, I would argue. But there are plenty of ethical traditions uh, that provide uh, a grounding in how we want to structure our economy today. It's neoclassical economics, which is kind of a little bit weird. It's a little bit of an outlier here. We will talk about neoclassical economics, Tony. No worries. <laughs> um, but let's uh, talk a little bit about your book, Cathonomics. Uh, why did you write it? And was it written only for Catholics? So I wrote this book with two audiences in mind. One is indeed for Catholics, because I've discovered over the years that most Catholics are rather unfamiliar with the tradition of Catholic social mm. teaching. They don't hear it in churches. They don't read the documents. It's kind of a mystery to them. Somebody, it's often referred to as the church's best kept secret. So I wrote it one for Catholics, but I also wrote it for non-Catholics. That's the second group. And I wanted this to provide input into the growing literature on what a, to put it, to use the slogan, what a post-neoliberal world would look like. A lot of economists and political thinkers are trying to grapple with the great problems we face today, the problems of inequality, exclusion, and climate change, the future of work. And they realize you need a stronger ethical grounding to tackle these questions. So they're trying to do, so there's a lot of people trying to do that. So I wanted this book to kind of be one input into that growing debate from a kind of a faith perspective. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, you know, you, earlier you said that some of the foundational principles go all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures. So then why catonomics and why not just economics as per Judeo-Christian principles? Right, because I think that the the kind of the advantage of Catholic social teaching is that it's a really thoroughly worked out framework, ethical framework, based on a set of principles that are very applicable to the modern economy. So um, and in my book, Cathonomics, I basically compare and contrast the assumptions of neoclassical economics with the assumptions of Catholic social teaching. And I argue that this framework is actually better placed to not only explain human motivation, but to provide the grounding for how we would structure the, the global economy today. Uh, so for this reason, I think that because it's so well worked out, it's coherent, it's internally consistent, and it's pretty sophisticated. Okay. Um, all right. 
let's talk about what's wrong with you know classical economics. Uh, what's your take on this? Okay, so neoclassical economics. Most economists would say that this is just this is kind of devoid of ethics, which is completely wrong. Of course, every 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 you know framework is based on some ethical principles. So I would argue that this is based a lot on the insights of Adam Smith, but it's also based a lot on the ethical framework known as utilitarianism. So it basically says that we are motivated by self-interest. This is Adam Smith's famous dictum that it's not due to the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, and the brewer that we get our dinner, but it's due solely to self-interest. Catholic social teaching would say that's too simplistic. It's also kind of dangerous. We are also motivated by benevolence, fraternity, solidarity, and reciprocity. But I think even more dangerous is the assumption about what we are supposed to do. Neoclassical economics says we are supposed to maximize the satisfaction of our subjective preferences. Now we need to break that down into distinct little pieces. First of all, it says preferences are subjective. You like what you like, and nobody has the right to tell you otherwise. Anything that's legal is a valid preference. There's no concept of any objective notion of what is good for the individual, for society, for politics, for the common good. And of course, in reality, what is matters is goods and services that you can buy on the market. That's, in fact, how neoclassical economics says you measure whether your preferences are satisfied or not by what you can buy on the market. There's no notion of anything that contributes to human flourishing that's not a consumer good that you can buy on the market. So no notion of relationality or meaning and purpose or spirituality or the stuff that we know from science contributes to happiness and well-being. Another assumption is that your wants are unbounded. All that stops you from consuming everything you desire is your income or, I guess, the number of hours in the day. And this, of course, gives rise to the notion that all that matters is the accumulation of wealth. Um, whereas in the tradition of Catholic social teaching, there's a strong emphasis on your desires being bounded, your needs being limited, and what they call lower goods being subordinated to higher goods. The final thing I would say on this in response to your question is, what do we mean by rationality? Um, Economists pride themselves on the assumption of rationality, but really all this means is you satisfy your preferences to the best extent possible. But in the tradition that goes all the way back to Aristotle, which has been adopted by Catholic social teaching, rationality means something different. In fact, I would argue something quite opposite. Rationality here is about the deployments of the virtue of prudence or practical reason, what Aristotle called phronesis, to figure out what is good for you and then to actively choose that good, good for the individual, good socially, good politically. But of course, neoclassical economics has nothing to say about any of these 
uh, issues. It's all about the maximization of your preferences. And this is why I think that neoclassical economics, its ethical framework is kind of unique. Most ethical traditions, both secular and religious, would argue that there is some notion of the good that we should be pursuing. But that doesn't exist in neoclassical economics. So um, I've been going on for a little bit. I hope that answers your question. Well, it, it answers, but also raises other questions. So let's imagine for a second, Milton Friedman is sitting with us and he's telling us that what you say ethics is, um, in my view, nothing but constrained optimization. If there are externalities from people's behavior that harm society, harms uh, the environment, well, we can have laws for that. We can have regulations which set certain constraints. And then people will optimize for the society what is the best. It's not about you know trying to figure out some nebulous notion of the common good. People can pursue individualism. We just have to make sure that their externalities are internalized. Is it a bit of a too cute uh, retort? I mean, a little bit. I mean, there's nothing in Catholic social teaching that says you shouldn't internalize externalities uh, or, you know, um, in fact, Pope Francis does argue quite strongly that businesses need to pay for the social costs of the environmental damage they do. So there's no there's no inconsistency there. But I think the Friedmanite approach is very ethically simplistic, I would argue, that it's very limited in its approach. The idea of optimization, the idea that markets somehow, by coordinating all this decentralized knowledge, can further the common good. We know in reality that it doesn't, it doesn't work out that way. It's too cute and too simple, I would argue. But would you deny that by pursuing neoclassical approaches to economic problem solving over the last half century, there has been substantial prosperity around the world and there has been substantial alleviation of poverty in India and China and elsewhere? Yeah, so I, I would say a few things about that. So I think that there is no doubt in my mind that markets can create wealth. Uh, central planning does not create wealth very well. We've had a kind of a long 20th century experiment on that, and that was a failed experiment. So central planning does not work. Markets actually work. But two caveats to that. The most successful economic experiment in human history, I would argue, was post-war social democracy. And that's when in both Europe and the United States, they took the market economy, but they twinned it with social protections. They twinned it with labor rights, and they twinned it with the respect for economic rights, not just property rights. And that turned out to be a phenomenal period in history in terms of high growth, high productivity, full employment, low inequality, and pretty much no financial crises. So that's, markets can work when yoked to the power of the state. And we also see that, I would argue, with the rise of China. China accepted the market after Deng Xiaoping's um, reforms in 1978. But uh, uh, actually, Milton Friedman went to China and actually shocked them by what he said. They actually threw him out because they thought that what he was saying was absolutely crazy. Uh, so China accepted the market. 
but with a strong role for the state in terms of, an, especially in terms of industrial policy, which it still does to this day. So yes, markets can work, but you need a strong relationship between public and private sectors. And this is why, this is where an ethical framework like Catholic social teaching is very helpful because it argues that markets can work, but markets need to have a moral boundary. And one way you can impose that moral boundary is have the government come in and protect people from kind of the swings and arrows of fortune that comes with any market economy. Okay, without getting too much into politics, but I think it's sort of an appropriate juncture for me to ask you this question. Having seen the two and a half years of Joe Biden's policy, do you see reflections of Catholic social teaching in that? I think so. Um, I think he tried uh, He tried and failed to implement what I would regard as pro-family policies, which was very resonant with Catholic social teaching, the child tax credit, which in its very short incarnation managed to reduce child poverty by 40%, and then they just threw it out, um, promoting things like paid uh, parental leave or universal pre-K. These are all policies that are definitely uh, have a moral bound, a boundary, bounding, sorry. I would also argue that some of his policies on industrial policy are also the right track uh, in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. I think this is kind of setting the scene for what a post-neoliberal world would look like. Um, if you want to pursue the energy transition, which is going to be the most unbelievably large economic transformation in human history in the shortest possible time, you can't rely on market signals to simply let that happen. You need a strong guiding role from industrial policy, uh, which the United States actually has a strong tradition in doing, going all the way back to President Kennedy in the 1960s and the moonshot. Uh, which, you know, shows very clearly what industrial policy and goal-based development can accomplish. So, yes, I think that President Joe Biden is definitely on the right path. But would you say that some of these, um, uh, you know, market-related skepticism or intervention of the state-type policy, it's almost like a bipartisan thing now? Because I don't know how many people watch the second Republican debate, but it seems like those candidates themselves are also sort of falling over each other as to how interventionist they can be on a wide range of things. Yeah, I definitely think there is the kind of the ground is definitely shifting on that. And I certainly don't watch Republican debates, but I do follow what people are saying. And I think it's it's somewhat reassuring that some on the right are recognizing that you need to protect workers to support unions, to promote industrial policy, things like this. And one thing I'd say about this is that some of the architects of the post-war social democratic boom in Europe were actually center-right Christian Democrats. In countries like Germany and France and Italy, the post-war era, the early post-war era, the first 20 years, were dominated by center-right parties. And they built out the welfare states and they built worker protect protections. In Germany, they even built things like co-determination, which allows workers to share in the management of the enterprise. This is not a socialist uh, endeavor. This is a center-right endeavor. So 
you know, they've done it before, they can do it again, but we definitely need an alliance of right and left to get this done. Okay, I hope I'm not gonna going on a tangent now, but what is your assessment of the economic policies pursued by your native uh, uh, Ireland governments? I don't follow it that closely, to be honest. Uh, I I would not agree with some of their tax policies. I was getting in that actually. Yes, I think you know if you try to set your tax policy with the goal of beggar thy neighbor and to try and you know just attract business from somebody else, that is not consistent with the global common good. And Catholic social teaching does see something called the universal common good, that we are global citizens, we do have global responsibilities, there is such a thing as global solidarity, especially to the poorest people in the world. And one problem in the neoliberal era is the race to the bottom in corporate taxes and in financial sector regulations that try and entice businesses. And that uh, does not support the global common good, I would argue. Okay, that's a good segue to my new question about, you know, global common good. I understand that, you know, you have worked on interfaith dialogues uh, in recent years. So give us a sense of the Vatican's role in that. Yes, okay. So from around 2016 to 2018, I was involved in a Vatican initiative um, coordinated by Jeffrey Sachs called Ethics in Action for Sustainable Development. And this brought together religious leaders and scholars from all the different traditions, so Catholic, Orthodox, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Confucian, Indigenous, also with business people, labor leaders, activists, economists, development practitioners, to discuss whether we could come up with a common ethical framework for the great challenges today of sustainable development, for what uh, John Rawls called an overlapping consensus. In other words, can you agree on an ethical consensus even though the basis for your agreement might differ across the different traditions? And the answer is yes. And we published a book on that called Ethics in Action. And it shows that there is a strong moral and ethical grounding for the challenges of sustainable development. And I'm talking about such issues as climate change, biodiversity, poverty, inequality, the future of work, uh, migration, all of these issues we discussed in these meetings. And I think we succeeded in coming up with uh, an ethical grounding to lay out the contours of the global common good. And those contours can actually be seen by the 17 sustainable development goals adopted by 196 countries in 2015. Um, these have a strong moral grounding, and this, this forms the basis of what we came up with in terms of the uh, universal common good. Has there been more progress in that effort? Because you said that was between 2016 and 2018. Uh, have there been more, you know, I don't know, communiques well, or papers? Yes. So we have a new initiative right now. I'm actually going back to the Vatican in a few weeks. Um, this new initiative is called the Fraternal Economy. And this is kind of, it's not so much interreligious dialogue. It's bringing together experts 
in economics and finance to try and figure out what a fraternal economy would look like based on the inspiration provided to us by Pope Francis uh, as a role model, um, though it's not religious in its, in its mooring. And uh, the meeting that's coming up in a few weeks is actually on how private finance can be leveraged to support the global common good, especially by promoting sustainable development in low-income countries. In these forums, do you see enthusiasm among the youth, or it's just a bunch of talking heads and middle-aged and older people? It's a bit of both. Um, there is basically, we have a Vatican Youth Symposium, which brings together young people typically once a year to discuss these issues. And their energy and dynamism and enthusiasm is always great to see. Um, there are also older people in these meetings, too. Uh, so, yeah, I would say it's it's a mixture. It's a good mix. So, Tony, it, so far you have talked about sort of the canon of uh, Catholic social uh, principles. And uh, it would seem to somebody who's not sort of well-versed on these issues that this is sort of universally accepted within the faith. Um, but shall I be a little provocative and ask you, is your interpretation of Catholicomics widely accepted among Catholics? I think it's broadly but not universally accepted. So I basically argue that in Catholicomics that the principles of Catholic social teaching align themselves well with Christian democracy, social democracy, sustainable development, with the idea that you need to prove the government needs to protect people from the fluctuations you get in any market economy. You need to elevate the rights of labor as kind of countervailing power against the, against the power of, work, of employers. And you need to guarantee economic rights as well as property rights. And you need to protect nature, protect the environment, because there's no human flourishing on a planet that where climate change, biodiversity and pollution run out of control. So for all of these reasons, I think Catholic social teaching is very resonant with social democracy and sustainable development. Now, there are other opposing views. Uh, there is a branch of more Catholic libertarianism, which I do not think is consonant with the principles of Catholic social teaching, because it, I, think, I just think you can't gel that. But those people would appeal to the principles of subsidiarity, which says that you want to take decisions at the lowest level possible and the highest level necessary. Um, there's also an alternative tradition called distributism, which says that you want to create an economy where as many people have as much private property as possible. Now, my issue with distributism is it's rather romantic and not very practical. I always ask distributives, well, how do you distribute property uh, to as many people as possible without massive state expropriation and redistribution which would, uh, you know, be on the scale of anything that communists would do. And they, I find they never really have an answer to that. Um, but that is a, it's a tradition in Catholic social teaching. Uh, and property-owning democracy is actually promoted by John Rawls. John Rawls actually taught that Sorry? his principle, yes, his principle of the, um, the difference yep. principle is most clear 
clearly expressed through property-owning democracy. So these are kind of alternative traditions. All right, Tony. So those are reasonable differences within a very large umbrella of the uh, Catholic faith, uh, understandable. Uh, I want to sort of go back to some of the things we discussed earlier when we were critiquing neoclassical economics, and I was sort of pushing back saying that hasn't it succeeded in, you know, raising people out of poverty and so on. So help me sort of understand between these two, you know, words that we throw around. One is prosperity and the other is progress. Is there a tension between the two? I guess you could say there's a tension. I mean, it's clear, as I mentioned, that markets can create wealth. So markets can definitely create prosperity. And you certainly need economic growth to lift people out of poverty. Uh, Certainly a necessary, maybe not a sufficient condition, but just leave that there. Um, The problem with market economies uh, that left to their own devices is that they can lead to lots of exclusion and inequality. Mm -hmm. And we have seen this in the past 40 years, especially in countries like the US and the UK, which are much more market oriented than, say, countries in continental Europe. So we are seeing uh, levels of inequality that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. Uh, We are seeing in the US uh, real wage stagnation for workers that do not have college degrees in particular. Um, We're seeing very high poverty rates in the U.S. uh, that go hand in hand with very high GDP per capita. And uh, most ominously, we're seeing these this phenomenon that Case and Deaton refer to as the deaths of despair, that people are dying due to drug uh, overdoses, alcohol poisoning and suicides. due to the despair they're facing in their lives. And this is kind of shocking in a country that's so rich uh, that these that these um, social dysfunctions would exist. Uh, and I think this is a real serious indictment of the neoliberal agenda of the past four decades. Uh, that's why I think we need to get back to something that looks a lot more like social democracy. Do you have some sympathy with uh, Thomas Piketty's work in terms of return on capital being greater than returns on labor and so on? Yeah, uh, I'm very sympathetic to to Piketty. Um, you know, his uh, it, but it's funny though because his first book, his first book, Capital, was a very pessimistic book. Basically, argued that inequality is a natural part of capitalism, given almost like a universal law of how capital accumulates. But in his most recent book, A Brief History of Equality, he takes a much more optimistic tone, which I think is quite different. He basically argues that over the past two centuries, we have actually seen a trend towards greater equality, and he provides a roadmap for how we can extend this into the 21st century. Okay, um, that's definitely encouraging. Um, and Tony, you just spoke about debts of despair in the context of the United States. Well, I mentioned earlier that your native country is Ireland, but you're a dual citizen of Ireland and the United States. So let's talk a little bit about your adopted homeland. 
this is probably something that I should have discussed at the very beginning. This is a very first principles questions. Um, the essence of America, uh, Tony, lies in the freedom of the individual. So is that antithetical to a social contract for a common good? I would say it depends on what you mean by freedom. The way freedom is typically interpreted in countries like the United States is a much more concept of negative freedom, freedom from coercion, leave me alone. If you tax me, you are impinging on my property rights to own and enjoy the fruits of my own labor. Um, that's very much negative freedom. But there's another definition of freedom that's positive freedom, and that's the freedom to flourish, the freedom to develop and become the best version of yourself, the freedom to choose uh, your own path in life. And this positive freedom is blocked by poverty and inequality and when you lack uh, the basic needs and necessities. So I think it depends on what you mean by freedom. One kind of freedom is a very libertarian kind of freedom, and that's very crimped. Now, you do want some negative freedoms. You want freedom from government coercion, for example, as you would get in a totalitarian country. But you also want positive freedoms. You want to be able to flourish. You want the freedom to develop your capacities, as Amartya Sen would say, to develop your capabilities. So we need a much more holistic and rounded view of freedom, I would argue. Sure. You just mentioned Amartya Sen, I, I recall, way back when reading Ethics and Economics. And I think that there is a thread between that uh, work by Sen and the work that you're trying to do, Tony, because it seems to me that you're striving to create an ethical and practical guide to dealing with modern problems. So let me put you on the spotlight here. So using ethical and practical sort of best principles? Have you worked out solutions to climate change and inequity and monopolistic practices? Well, that's a complicated question. So I'll give you a slightly complicated answer. Uh, I think that we have actually solved a lot of these problems. I mean, I mentioned earlier the post-war experiment of social democracy. So we saw very clearly from that period how you can have high economic growth and low in, and low inequality. You do it through the tax transfer system, you do it through government spending, and you do it through making sure unions have sufficient power to bargain collectively for their wages and benefits, uh, and also with some elements of workplace democracy. Um, we've also solved some of the problems of sustainable development, even though we choose not to do it. Let me give you a, an interesting example here. The World Bank claims that there are approximately around 700 million people living in extreme poverty today. That's living on less than $2.15 per day. Um, let's conceive of this little experiment. Let's take, for simplicity's sake, a billion people. And let's say you give them all $1,000 a year. Now, that should be enough to meet their basic needs. They won't be rich by any means, but they have their basic, absolute bare minimum basic needs met. So that's a that trillion dollars. Cost, that will cost $1 trillion. That's 1% of global GDP. As a global society, an incredibly rich global society, we can afford to do this very easily, but we choose not to. And that's because I think 
even though we have great technological power and financial power, we don't have the moral power necessary to deploy these kinds of solutions. So I think that we have solutions readily available, but we choose not to do them. Now, let me turn to climate change. Climate change is a complicated one, because I think that given the immense developments in wind, solar, batteries, and EVs, and all these new technologies over the past 10 to 15 years, we are on the cusp of an era of cheap energy abundance that a lot of people on both right and left don't realize. A lot of people on the right think we need fossil fuels forever. That's crazy. But a lot of people on the left think we need degrowth, that we need to like reduce our living standards. I don't think that's true either. As I said, we're on the cusp of you know clean energy abundance. That said, as I mentioned earlier, the energy transformation is the single greatest economic challenge that we have ever faced, given the short time frame we have to get this done, which is going to require everything we have in terms of technology, in terms of finance, in terms of politics, and in terms of ethics. Um, do we have everything we need to solve this problem? Probably not. There are a lot of really, really hard challenges, like how do you decarbonize in, uh, uh, industries like steel and cement? These are really hard challenges for which we don't probably don't have full technical solutions right yet. So I would say yes, in response to your question, there are some challenges of sustainable development that are really, really hard and where we still have a lot of hard work to do to solve them. Uh, but I, I really like your first framing of this question. Uh, I think that was really profound that we have great technological and financial power, but it seems like, you know, we don't have the moral fortitude yet. Uh, I think, you know, that really in a way sums up the essence of your calling. Uh, so I appreciate that, Tony. Now, Tony, uh, you spent uh, almost a quarter of a century working at the IMF. So I want to ask you a question about the role of multilateral organizations. Do they undermine sovereignty or should they be seen as providers of global public good, not just in theory, but also in practice? Okay, so let me answer that question using two principles of Catholic social teaching. And those principles are solidarity and subsidiarity. Solidarity is quite simple. It's basically the idea that we are all responsible for all, and that includes every person in the world today, including people from the poorest countries in the world. We have a moral responsibility to them. The second principle of subsidiarity, this is that you want to do make decisions at the lowest level possible and the highest level necessary. Sometimes that highest level necessary is the global level. When you have global challenges that cannot be solved by national or local governments, you need to solve them at the global level. The classic example there is climate change. The climate, as we all know, does not respect national borders, does not respect sovereignty, which requires a global solution. This is why the Paris Agreement on climate change is so profound, so important, and so transformative. So yes, there is a vital role for multinational, multilateral organizations today, like the IMF, like the World Bank. And I think there should be a, an international organization set up to monitor the implementation of the Paris Agreement, for example. We need to give that, we need to create something with real teeth there and real power. 
Okay, but in the context of that, is there necessarily a need for a faith-based approach or it can just go on in a similarly seemingly secular manner? Well, it depends on what you mean by a faith-based approach. I mean, what we really need, as I keep coming back to this point, we need an ethical and moral grounding for all of our economic and social decisions. Um, as I mentioned earlier, we have great technology, we have finance, we are very rich, but we do not have the ethical grounding needed to solve these profound problems. And these problems are getting more serious year after year. And we just bury our heads in the sand and we pretend they don't exist. This is why we need a realignment around these uh, core ethical values. Now, whether they come from religions or whether they come from secular ethics, I would argue it doesn't really matter, matter, but we need better ethics. Here, here. Very well said, Tony. Uh, thank you so much for your time and insights and coming to this podcast. Oh, it's a, it's a great pleasure, Timor. I was delighted to do this, and thank you for your interest in Cantonomics. No, I think not just me, but my listeners would also find this absolutely fascinating. Uh, copy time is for information only and does not represent any trade recommendations. Definitely not this podcast. All 109 episodes of Copy Time are available on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.